Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, is the World Health Organization giving contradictory information? Or do people just hear what they want to hear? Vaccination trials have hit a snag and have been paused. But that's a good thing. And MP for Flamborough Glambrook, David Sweet, has been chosen to chair Parliament's Ethics Committee. He'll give us some insight to his duties. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hope you had a great COVID-19 Thanksgiving. Please don't be offended if I do this intro with my top button undone. It's the leftover edition of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Give your hands to yourself. We didn't have to say that this year uh, because usually everyone's in a different house, room, different part of the woods. Uh, yeah, bizarre. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is another edition of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Willers come back at the station, keeping us on the air uh, this day after Thanksgiving. And a different one it was, that's for sure, uh, as uh, another scaled-down version, very similar to Easter. Had us all talking, is this the way Christmas is going to be? But, hey, you know what? It's about being thankful for the things that you have and uh, not that you missed or you can do again next year, right? So uh, anyway, another big show coming up, and uh, we hope you hang around for it. Uh, another interesting day. Boy, President Trump out on the uh, campaign trail again. Will you have that, that clip of him uh, talking about the kiss? Oh, boy, I do. <laughs> Let it fire whenever you're ready. The nice part, I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. Wow. Uh, I'll pass, but thanks anyway. Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on my invitation into the mosh pit. Uh, that was uh, the president speaking earlier on this weekend uh, when cleared, apparently, a negative test, and uh, he's out and about again. Uh, we'll touch on that coming up uh, a little later on. Uh, obviously, uh, lots of chatter in regard to COVID-19, not only because we are uh, just participated in a Thanksgiving uh, edition, uh, COVID-19 edition of Thanksgiving and such, but also chatter about vaccinations and where this disease is uh, on the worldwide stage. Uh, the World Health Organization, the WHO, uh, uh, and a comment from an official uh, in regard to lockdowns and weather uh they are beneficial or not has been a discussion we're going to give you we're going to play you a clip from the head of the uh, world health organization this is on uh not so much on uh, uh lockdowns and such but on herd immunity and whether that works with this covid-19 uh coronavirus we just don't know yet most people who are infected with the virus that causes covid-19 develop an immune response within the first few weeks but we don't know how strong or lasting that immune response is or how it differs for different people. All right. Uh, and again, uh, over the weekend, information coming out from the World Health Organization on whether lockdowns are the right thing or wrong thing to do. And I guess it depends on the scenario and what stage we're in and how we do it. And uh, we're learning from all of this. Let's bring in Andrew Cadell, global, uh, sorry, Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and is with us now. Uh, Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm in uh, rural Quebec where uh, there's a very, very low uh, threshold here. We're in the or- we're in an orange zone, so I can pretty well do anything I want. Uh, that's good, and obviously uh, a beautiful part of the country this time of the year. I'm thinking too. Oh, it's amazing! <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. The colors are are astonishing. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about what happened over the weekend and the comment from the World Health Organization. Uh, let's start with with what was said, and and is this taken out of context? How do we read into this? Well, I think it came out of an interview with, um, I think it was BBC, with some with the British uh, uh, media, uh, with David Navarro, who's a senior official with the WHO, and who's been there long, long enough that uh, I was there when he was there back in the nineties. And um, you know, his point is that lockdowns are a last resort. That really, if you follow all the proper protocols, 
that you really don't have to have lockdowns. <clears throat> and um, two good examples of that. Uh, one is the fact that we've been able to keep up the uh, the distribution supply chains for food uh, in Canada so that we're not lacking for food. Nobody's starving. The grocery stores are full, even in my, my, my area of Quebec, which is uh, 150 kilometers from Quebec City, so there's no big metropolis close by, and um, and and that's because we've managed to you know have proper protocols for for trucks coming across the border or traveling within the country, and the same thing for people within stores that if people wear masks and and and, and social distance, so they should be okay. Uh, but uh, lockdowns are, are as I say the final resort, so that's what his point was. And I think that's what the, what the WHO has always been saying. And it's uh, when you look at uh, Korea and Singapore and uh, uh, certainly New Zealand, uh, they followed those protocols and they didn't have uh, you know really severe lockdowns after the first couple of weeks, and they were fine. So I think that's that's the point. So, uh, again, as you mentioned here, uh, not really new information here. This has been the approach all along. The first wave, obviously, when we didn't really know what was going on and, and, and what the depth of this was, uh, obviously there was uh, you know a massive or massive lockdowns. Now with the second wave, we're seeing a more targeted approach. So why is this gaining so much? Why did this gain so much attention over the weekend? Well, I, I think two things. One, um that uh, Donald Trump and Maxime Bernier both tweeted about it. Now, you know, Maxime Bernier is in an election, in a by-election, and he knows he's going to lose in Toronto, and God knows why, he, why he's even running. And Donald Trump uh, is more than likely going to lose in the election in a few weeks. So I, I think, you know, when you take, you know, I always used to say, as a journalist, consider the source. Well, let's, in this case, let's consider the source of the tweets. So uh, this is, depending on what side of this discussion you are, uh, people cherry-picking information and, and using it to to simply back up their own point of view. Yeah, of course. I mean, everybody, if, if somebody has a certain, uh, 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 not narrow, but uh, fixed kind of point of view, any sort of information uh, looks like a port in the storm. And in this case, Navarro's Comet which was, uh, uh, you know, actually, it's, it's a very interesting interview because what he talks about is the, the effects on people, uh, on mental health, on, uh, on, on developing world economies, which I hadn't even thought about, that local farmers can't get their produce to uh, markets in developing countries, or that uh, places like um, Barbados and Jamaica, which are, uh, you know, Barbados is in pretty good shape, but Jamaica not so much, that they're developing countries that they really rely on tourism, and of course, the tourism market is dried up, and so they're suffering. So these are places that, that we don't really think about at, in terms of, of how the pandemic has affected them. But but uh, their economies are dependent on people traveling or or being able to move goods from one one place to another. In Canada and the United States, we've been very very lucky because we've been able to do that without that much disruption. Is the is the messaging mixed here, or are Canadians smart enough to wade through this? I mean, as I mentioned before, it, it's pretty obvious the second wave is a bit different than the first wave was. Uh, you know, whether it's targeted approaches to closures or or whatever it is that, that that's going on, uh, is the messaging still mixed in your in your mind? Well, you know, here in Quebec, and I've been watching Doug Ford. Um, you know, I, I think the problem is that if the if it doesn't get through, that the that the answer has to be to be more severe. It's kind of like being a very strict uh, parent, and and even here, I mean, in, in a place where there were there were no cases, I mean, we had eight cases over the summer. There was a party at a local junior college, and uh, thirty people were infected. So all of a sudden, there was this huge spike, and it was triple what it what there'd been. But um, and so you know, the immediate response was, "Well, you know, you can't have parties, and we've got to reduce the numbers of of, um, of gatherings." That's just common sense. Um, but I, and I think I think you know the one area where we have to be concerned about uh, about security and where lockdowns should really apply um, is is uh, in seniors' homes where where people are at the you know they're they're vulnerable to an extent to something like twelve times more than a person who's thirty. <clears throat> so you know you really really have to we really have to worry about any, anyone over eighty, and so that that the level of security in places like that has to be enormous. But it's interesting when you look at, for example, in Quebec, they had uh, 
We had 1,200 cases uh, yesterday, I think, or two days ago, and I think Ontario had 900. Uh, but the death rate is very, very low, which shows that yeah. people can become infected, but there aren't going to be that many deaths as a result. And that's because we're, we're seeing it more among young people that are becoming infected, and, of course, they're not as susceptible. So, you know, as long as it, it's fairly well targeted and people follow the proper protocols, I don't think lockdowns are necessary. Uh, the problems for governments are is that, you know, the, the numbers are just shown in, in sort, of, sort of a brute force when you see all these these high numbers. I think there's a sort of an, an instinctive need to respond in a, in a fairly severe way. I, I, and in terms of, that's a long answer to a very short question, but the, to answer your question directly, I think that, that Canadians are sensible people, and I think that if they follow the protocols that have, have, you know, have been requested, they can go about doing their, their, their normal lives with any kind of, without any real fear of either getting the disease or having to be locked down. Obviously, uh, the solution, if there is one, is finding a balance in all of this. Do you think we have been doing that to this point? Uh, obviously, you're in Quebec, a little different scenario than it is uh, in Ontario. Obviously, uh, in Ontario now, Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa are considered hotspots. What about those hotspots? Should they be locked down? Should, should the hospitality industry, restaurants, pubs, that sort of thing, be shut down in the hotspots? <clears throat> You know, um, it's it's hard to drink with a mask on, so um, or eat, and therefore, if you're going to be in a restaurant or in a bar, you've got to be social distancing, and that's complicated for the owners of those of those uh, bars or restaurants. Um, but uh, I think there there has to, and you know, of course, the terraces aren't going to be open when it gets down to minus twenty. But um, I, I think there there has to be some way that we communicate to people, especially those people that are, are you know, walking around in the streets protesting against masks as if there's some sort of a, an imposition on their, on their civil rights, which they're not. They're protecting themselves. Um, but um, I, I think there has to be a way that we communicate effectively to say, um, if you follow these protocols and if you social distance properly, then you're not going to be... Uh, and if you have any symptoms, you know, don't go near anyone. Um, uh, that that we can we can get through this. The problem is that a lot of people are ignoring that, or because they're very very frustrated, they're just uh, uh, going out in, in, in public and uh, and taking risks, and and uh, and that's kind of foolish. And uh, and and uh, let's face it, you know, in a population of tens of millions of people, it's very hard to control uh, just a few individuals that could be spreading. Your thoughts on what is happening south of the border, especially in this past weekend with Donald Trump heading back onto the campaign trail, does that send mixed messaging? Well, it sends a terrible message. I just heard the clip that you ran. And, uh, yeah. You know, we because his doctors have not been that forthcoming, it's impossible for anyone to know whether he's, he's, he's still a carrier um, and uh, when, when exactly he... Uh, he actually had it, so who he may have spread it to. Uh, but we know that there's there are dozens of people that have been affected who were in his ambit or in his orbit. So um, it's 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 really worrisome. But I think that the good thing is that the response from the public, at least certainly in terms of polls, has shown that the majority of people think that he's being incre- incredibly irresponsible, and that's going to reflect badly on him and his party uh, in uh, the election. And and you know something? This is uh, I have a I have a cousin who's running in North Carolina as a Democrat, and who's uh, uh, six six uh, for the state senate. And um, he told me that the dream team this months ago that the dream team for the uh, election was uh, Biden and Harris <clears throat> before Harris was uh, was nominated. And he also said that if uh, if, if if Trump continues to um, <clears throat> just you know to undermine his own credibility that it's going to be very, very bad for the Republican Party right across the country and even into the state senates. So you may see uh, flips of, uh, of governors. You may see flips of, uh, of, of both the House and the Senate in this election, and it'll be all on Donald Trump's door. Uh, Andrew, we all know what the polls said last election and that there was no way that Donald Trump was ever going to win. And we saw what happened. Any concern that the polls are reflecting what happened in the last election? Well, I think that, uh, you know, back in, I guess it was 
July or August, I remember watching CNN. And you know, they have John King, I think it is, as their poll guy. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's John King, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he was saying, he was saying to Wolf Blitzer, if, uh, if Trump were to win uh, back seats that Romney didn't win against uh, Obama and win all the other seats that are traditional Republican, then he has a pretty good shot of becoming president. And uh, he named the, the states, and they were Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Hmm. And, of course, those are the states that Trump won and became president. Yeah. So from that point on, July, August, I was watching the states, and, uh, it, you know, the, the rest is history, as they say. So you don't have to win the popular vote because of the Electoral College. In this case, I think the, uh, the battleground states, as they call them, and Florida— are, are, and North Carolina's in play too. Actually, um, are going to go uh, are going to go Democratic. What do you think the next three weeks entail? Well, so far we haven't had the October surprise, and uh, I mean the only October surprise we've had is, is uh, Trump's illness, and uh, and that has actually brought to, brought down his credibility. I should say, um, and, um, and and I think. Uh, It'll probably be fairly smooth sailing. Uh, it depends on what happens in the international front, because, of course, you could see something happening in uh, with the Turks in Nagorno-Karabakh and, and the you know and and the involvement of uh, of potential involvement of the Russians in the American election. Um, but um, so far, so good. I mean, I think I think this is. Uh, it's not a slam dunk, but I, I honestly think that uh, that as long as the uh, the Democrats keep a relatively low profile, Trump's going to beat himself. As we always used to say in politics, mm. uh, you give somebody enough rope, they're going to hang themselves. There's certainly lots of rope here. Uh, Andrew Canellis with us, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Always a pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Where are numbers in Ontario because of the holiday Monday yesterday? uh, Both sets of numbers coming out today. Here's what Global's Sandy Salerno had to say. The numbers didn't surpass Friday's record breaker of 939, but the number of deaths over the past two days was at 12, including nine today. That's the highest figure recorded in a single day since the middle of July. The number of people being treated for symptoms in hospitals continues to rise 230 today, up from 192 a week ago. The hotspots remain Toronto, Peel and Ottawa, where the province has moved to a modified stage two, closing things like indoor dining and gyms. Dr. Isaac Bogosh believes this was the right move. I think we're doing the right thing. Unfortunately, it came to this point where we had to take these more heavy-handed measures, but I think it's going to work. I think we'll get this under control. Bogosh says it should take about 10 days to two weeks before we start to see any change from these restrictions. Sandy Salerno, Global News. All right, lots of chatter uh, in regard to vaccinations. Uh, Not only when are they going to be available, uh, when are they going to be in your arm, uh, how many are going to take them, and how uh, successful will these trials and uh, research that is going on now be? Uh, We, uh, it's not so much coming up with the vaccination; it's the uh, the series of testing, the 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 series of tests that go on um, to make sure that this thing is safe and is and is, is. is good for mass use. That's what takes a great deal of time. We have seen uh, various comments over uh, the last few weeks about where vaccinations are. Uh, some have been put on pause, one at Oxford and now another one at Johnson & Johnson has paused, uh, paused their trials uh, for a, a, a potential COVID-19 vaccine as uh, some or one of the participants came down with an unexpla- uh, unexplained illness. So how does this all work? Uh, how do you balance all of this let's bring in brian dixon professor at the university of waterloo teaches in the department of biology and the immunology class currently researching covid19 antibody testing methods and is with us now brian thank you for the time hope you're doing well i'm doing well i hope you're great too scott Yep, we're all trying after we uh, enter into uh, week number 31 here. Lots of chatter about vaccination, Brian. Uh, where are we with the vaccination? And when we see pauses like this, what does it say? So we're at phase three of a lot of trials where they do it widely, tens of thousands of participants. Generally there, you're looking for efficacy against the disease. So that's why it's being deployed in places like Florida, South Africa, where there's lots of disease, disease sorry, and 
there's a chance people who get vaccinated will get exposed to it and we'll see if it works. Um, it's also a point where you see the side effects. When they design vaccines, I mean, like any drug, vaccines do have very rare side effects. They, they take a long time to design them because they want the side effects to be like one in 100,000, one in 200,000, very rare. Um, so when you see a side effect in a, in a population size of about the tens of thousands right now, you have to pause and make sure it's okay. Now, the question really is, is it from the vaccine or is it something else? Say, for example, you got vaccinated and then you threw up in the evening. Is it because of the vaccine or did you eat some bad sushi? Is it mm. just a coincidence? So that's what they're trying to assess right now. Now, uh, obviously, we know vaccines are coming from various sources at this point. There's lots of people that are working on this. Uh, what is the common denominator? How are all of these different? Because could some uh, bring on certain effects where others may not? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, and, and I think what I'll say is a lot of the technology that's being tried for vaccines right now is not stuff that's been standard before. They're the, the, the types of vaccines they're using where they get a a benign virus and they add the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein onto it and, 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 and infect you with it is not something that's been commonly done in the past. So a lot of this is new technology. So I think that's why they're being cautious. It's hard to say what the side effects will be. It's new. Um, there are other types of vaccines where they just take parts of the, the viral genetic material and inject it into you, not enough to make a whole virus, but enough to make one of the proteins from the virus that will then elicit immune response. And again, that's relatively new. It's been tried in some animals. Um, so, and they will have differential side effects, and it's hard to say what they are. I mean, some of the common ones will be headaches and, and swelling in the arm and those things, but it's hard to say what the others will be. And how common is it to have a pause in a scenario like this? Oh, I think I think common enough. I think, you know, when you're doing tens of thousands of people, there's always going to be something that's a little bit um, questionable or something that's interesting that you want to pause and look at and make sure that you're doing things the correct way because we all want this to be safe. So I think there's there's often pauses in, in, in trials at this scale while they assess what's going on, but it doesn't mean that the, the vaccine's not working or that there will be problems with it. It just means they're being cautious. Do we know if this is perhaps just one of the people that have taken the vaccine that has uh, had a side effect or would it be a series of people? Any way of knowing that? Well, I think in the, in the news article they mentioned, they said it was one person. And for the yeah. AstraZeneca trial, it's one person. Now, what will happen is this won't be something simple, like I said, like like swelling in the arm or, or, or vomiting. This might be a more serious thing, something that's going to require like a doctor or a hospital. Or it, it's, mm -hmm. it's on the more serious end of the effects. Uh, so that's why they're pausing. But again, it's not clear that it's from the vaccine. They have to, they have to look at that. So how do you know? When it's safe, how do you know, how, how do you know when you're comfortable enough to to let this be released to the public? Well, again, if they can determine that that uh, it's uh, it's from another cause from the vaccine, or if it looks like it's even likely not from the vaccine, that it's something that arose before, then they'll probably continue the vaccine trial, uh, and they might continue anyway. And if another one of these these serious cases pro pro props up, then you might want to stop the trial. But for one person, like I said, you, you, these serious effects are one in 100,000, one in 200,000. So for one person getting it, it, it's it's a note of caution, but it's not a full stop yet. How safe is it to be testing these different vaccines on people, whether you said this is into phase three now? Um, how do you get here uh, even to choose the candidates? Well, generally what you would do is you would, you would go through a series of tests where you inject it into just about 10 or 15. Well, you'd do animals first, to be honest. You would do animal yeah, trials. Yeah. Then you would inject it into like tens of people to make sure that there's no serious harmful effects just from the injection. Then you do hundreds of people to make sure you can see some kind of immune response with your vaccine. Then you do this where you do tens of thousands of people where you look to see if it actually has an effect. So it's the way these trials usually go. Um, but the thing is, we're compressing things because we're in a rush. We're doing the second phase and the third phase at the same time in some cases. So, you know, it, it's it, I think they're being cautious and they're pausing because things are going very fast. Uh, do, do they give this to healthy people or would they give this to people who are who have the disease? At this point, they would give it to healthy people and in the in the areas where the vaccine is or the disease is prevalent and see if they are you know, immune or see if it helps prevent the disease. And this is not a cure. This is a vaccination. 
Well, explain the difference. Forms. Uh, and, and that's the thing is a vaccination may not necessarily be a cure. There are vaccines that prevent the disease completely. Um, for example, think of the measles vaccine. You get a couple of boosts and you generally don't get the measles for your entire life. There are vaccines that just mitigate the serious effects. You will still probably get sick, but you don't get the, the serious things going to comas and, and, and deaths and stuff. And it's hard to know at this point what this vaccine will be, whether it will actually prevent the disease or whether it will just mitigate the, the serious effects. Um, either way, it's good because people won't be dying. But in one case, we won't have to worry about it at all. In another case, we'll still have to be cautious about spreading it to the vulnerable people, right? How do we know that it works? How do we know, like, obviously, you know, several phases of testing in order to make sure there's no side effects. How do we know that it does what it's supposed to do? Do you expose these people to the virus after an inoculation? Generally, you wouldn't deliberately expose them. I I did read a study in England where they were getting a few volunteers to be deliberately exposed to it. Um, To be honest, on an ethical ground... (laughs) That's very shaky. I mean, are you paying these people to risk their lives? It's kind of scary. What they're doing is the trials they're doing now, as I said, the phase three, you give it to people in the area where the disease is prevalent, and then you watch to see in the group of people we gave the vaccination, what percentage of people get the disease. In the unvaccinated people around them, what percentage of people get the disease. And you weigh to see if the vaccine really did have an effect in decreasing the prevalence of the disease. Will, uh, and I sort of touched on this earlier, will each one of these vaccines be vastly different or as all of this information becomes available, slowly they all become the same kind of vaccine, the same type of vaccine? Uh, well, it'll, well, I mean, there are a possibility that two or three different types of vaccine, the RNA vaccine or the, the inactivated uh, uh, virus vaccine could be prevalent. We could have different vaccines developed by different countries deployed in different areas of the world. We'll have to wait and see how it is, um, and it'll depend on what's most effective. So um, it could be a patchwork. It could be one vaccine. It's it's hard to say at this point. So it, it, it's it, is it obvious then that this vaccination will evolve over time? It will. All vaccinations evolve over time, and even as they develop them and produce them, for other diseases over like 10 or 20 years, they will revise the vaccine. They will change the, the formulation to make it better. So, How difficult would it have been to create this vaccine? Is it like creating any other uh, vaccine, uh, vaccination of this type? or And again, what takes time is the testing, or is the challenge different this time? Well, the challenge is different this time. There aren't very many vaccines against viral diseases. Most of the vaccines you get are against the bacterial diseases. I mean, there's the flu. There's a few of them, but they haven't been built on this technology. So I think, but they seem to have gotten over the technology hurdle pretty quickly. It's a question of just testing. As I said, normally it takes like 10 years. Uh, We're doing this in a year. And are you confident that when something is available, that it will be widely available around the world for those that need it? Uh, It should be. I think, I mean, from what I've seen, uh, they're, they're capable of manufacturing billions of doses. It, it will take time. It will not be, if they develop it by March, it will not be globally available by July. It will take probably a year to roll it out to everybody. Um, but I'm hoping it'll be available to everybody. They are, there are countries pre-purchasing do- doses, and there are coalitions to make sure that low-income countries and, and other disadvantaged countries get it. It will just take time. Has COVID-19 changed our view of vaccinations? Um, A little bit. I think it's changed our view of the technology that's available. If this is successful, it will lead to a change in the technology that's used for future vaccinations, and it may make it better. So um, uh, I'm hoping so. Uh, Do you think the anti-vax movement will will take heed here? You know, many people, if you ask our parents or our grandparents generation, of course, you should get vaccinated. I mean, these, you know, these diseases, illnesses that we prevented over the last 100 years because of vaccinations have greatly improved our quality of life. However, with our generation, younger generation who maybe not have seen that, maybe we're a bit bit hesitant to to get a vaccination. Now that this generation, some have said, uh, you know, the first crisis of a privileged generation has been presented with this. It's our own. It's this generation's virus, per se. Will will that will that uh, motivate more to, to, to get a vaccination and even a flu shot for that matter? I'm really hoping it will. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm relatively older. I remember people in my village who were deaf in one ear from side effects of childhood diseases they weren't vaccinations mm. for. Uh, and 
uh, I agree that a lot, a lot of those side effects, a lot of those bad effects haven't been seen in this generation. But I think maybe this is a wake-up call that vaccination does work and is important for the public good. Um, but again, we'll have to see how it plays out. <laughs> what about the flu shot? Uh, as, as obviously the fall uh, is here and approaches the flu season, uh, double whammy here. Australia had a, a, a different scenario in the sense that they actually reported lower flu cases because people were using a protocol around masking for COVID-19, which obviously slowed the spread of the flu. Uh, how concerned are you with the flu season? I'm concerned about it for for more for the the effect it'll have socially. I mean, I think we'll see something like Australia. We're all masking, we're distancing, so it should slow the spread of the flu. But people should still get vaccinated because I know children go to school. If they get a runny nose or a a cough, they can't go to school. Parents have to stay home. It could be due to the COVID-19. It could be the flu. It could be anything else. If you get a flu vaccination, chances are you'll have less incidents like that. It'll make your life easier. What advice do you have for those that may be listening right now and very hesitant to get a flu shot or even a a vaccination when it does become available for COVID-19? What would you say to them? I would just say, please look at the science. It's undoubted that um, vaccines have prevented diseases and and they prevent it spreading in the the population. Um, Prior to vaccines, 300,000 children a year in Canada used to get the measles. That's in Canada. That was almost every child in Canada. Now yeah. almost none get the measles. Vaccines are safe. Please just look at the science and look at the good it does uh, in, in society. Brian Dixon has been with us, professor at the University of Waterloo and teaches in the Department of Biology and Immunology. Brian, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You Be well too, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of people want to talk about the we scandal. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, why are you spending so much time talking about American politics? And what about Canada and Trudeau and all that stuff that's going on in Ottawa? Well, here's a perfect reason to do so. Uh, last week, local MP David Sweet chosen to chair Parliament's Ethics Committee. Uh, and joining us now, David Sweet, MP for Flamborough-Glanbrook and on the line now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well, and I hope you are, Scott, and I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Yes, and back at you. Hopefully you did, too. Uh, first of all, congratulations on this. Um, tell us about this position and your objective moving forward. Thank you. Well, uh, I, I appreciate the, uh, the kind words. My colleagues uh, uh, elected me to be the chair of the Ethics Committee, which also deals with uh, privacy and access to information. But, of course, uh, these days we're seized with the uh, We Charity, and, and more specifically, because uh, for your listeners, there's really two sets of documents and two different stories out there. The one set of documents were the documents that were being pursued and were heavily redacted. Uh, they're being pursued by the Finance Committee, uh, and the Finance Committee is still doing its work around in that regard, and that was about the actual uh, uh, We Charity and the program that they were uh, program money that they were to be given uh, for this uh, Canada student initiative that uh, they were that was sole source to them. Uh, the documents that we're going after are uh, from from a, an organization called Speaker Spotlight, which uh, has the evidence that uh, my colleagues are trying to pursue in regards to speaking fees that were paid to the Trudeau family. And how much of all of this ground to a halt because of prorogation? Well, uh, first off, the committees were hampered all the way through because of the way that Parliament was uh, was sitting in this virtual aspect, and so many of the committees weren't even able to operate, and then prorogation brought everything to a halt uh, because everything must stop. The House is shut down until the, uh, until the, the throne speech happened, and so, uh, it, you know, this has been delayed months now. Uh, obviously, uh, Liberal House leader, uh, lots of people don't want this to continue. Uh, the Prime Minister has said he's too busy with COVID-19, you know, to talk about all of this uh, other stuff, although we certainly had time for a prorogation uh, in the middle of, uh, of all of this. Uh, is there a need? Why do we need to keep going back? Uh, uh, the House leader said that the Clerk of the Privy Council and the Prime Minister have already appeared. There's nothing more to see here. Well... Um, look, this uh, committee, uh, the previous uh, uh, committee, uh, before I chaired it, uh, it was chaired by my colleague, uh, MP Rachel Harder, and the committee had already uh, was 
had, had agreed on the motion to request the documents uh, in regards to all these fees that would uh, that would show a conflict of interest, and uh, then Parliament was prorogued, and so that request was was nullified. And uh, right now, what we're debating at our committee is simply the same uh, motion that was agreed upon before. There's some small variations of it, but it was it's a motion to. Uh, request documents from this uh, speaker's organization so that uh, it's clear to the public what uh, what was being paid to uh, the Trudeau family. Uh, obviously, when the government was prorogued way back when, in the latter part of the summer, a very different scenario. Numbers were on their way down with COVID-19. Uh, and, and then immediately uh, there was this throne speech coming up, which was going to build back better to steal the Democrats' line from south of the border. And uh, a, a new initiative to take us forward. Uh, obviously, with the throne speech, we didn't really see any of that. It was more of just the same. So how long before this becomes news again and we are talking about it as much as we were prior to prorogation? Do you see that happening? Do you see still see an interest uh, within the Canadian uh, population that still wants to know what happened here? I, I think everybody wants to know what, what was going to happen with hundreds of millions of dollars that was going to go to this uh, Canadian student initiative that um, that opposition MPs were saying, you know, if you have this this money, we need more money in the regular uh, in the regular student uh, initiative that happens every year, where employers get some of their uh, some of the students' income uh, reimbursed by the government so that they can give them experience. Uh, so it usually benefits many many charities and uh, many businesses, as well as gives students very valuable experience through the Canada Summer Jobs Program. But they wanted to create this new initiative, single sourced. It wasn't even put out there uh, in a competitive tender. And so I think all Canadians want to know where hundreds of millions of dollars were going to go, and also uh, where other people benefited by steering that contract to one specific entity. How many how many committees are, are ongoing now that are still following this? Because obviously there's a call for an anti-corruption committee. Uh, I, I was talking last week in regard to this. And, and, and do we need a whole pile of committees to look at all of these? Or just similarly to what we had running prior to prorogation, will that suffice? How many more new committees do we need to study this? Well, I think what the what my colleagues were mentioning in, in regards to an anti-corruption committee was uh, to answer one of the concerns about multiple committees handling, uh, particularly the WE scandal. And, and they're saying, okay, rather than ethics, rather than finance, rather than government operations, uh, you know, why don't we just uh, handle all that at one committee, uh, and then uh, the the other committees can get on with things that uh, fall within their their purview of responsibility. Yeah, you know, like I said, uh, our you know between privacy, information, and ethics, our mandate is very large on the ethics committee. So um, that's what they're suggesting for to make it more efficient. How much more information can we get that we don't already know from this that that could uh, perhaps change the public's opinion? Look, I. Uh, I, I can only say what uh, what has been said by my colleagues, et cetera, that, you know, filibusters only happen because somebody doesn't want to go someplace, and you can only assume that they, they want to stop any kind of investigation because there's significant information there. So I, I think as far as, the, uh, as far as the information in regards to what we're pursuing and the other that I mentioned earlier in the Finance Committee, I think there's lots still to be seen. Uh, this is going to, uh, how do you think this is going to play out as we, as we continue to recover from COVID-19 in the next, say, three to six months? Well, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, COVID in and of itself has been mysterious in the way that, uh, you know, governments have been learning on the fly. I, I notice uh, I've read way more, I'm certain, just like you, way more epidemiological pa- papers than I ever thought I would mm. in my life. Uh, and some of the scientists aren't agreed upon, you know, approaches, et cetera. So how the, how the uh, virus is, is going to, you know, manifest itself in, in the days of head, uh, days ahead as it, as it morphs, uh, you know, the, and et cetera. 
uh, is remains to be seen. But you know, we still have to manage an economy. We still have to manage a country. We still need to have uh, politicians who are uh, who are held to account for their actions. And uh, I think that no matter where we go in, in the future, in regards to you know whether we're able to get a vaccine, uh, whether our uh, initiatives and strategies to fight the to fight the pandemic will be successful. Uh, we'll still always need to make sure that government operates properly. And, and, and frankly, even more so because every extra dollar that you need to fight a pandemic, you, you on the other side, need to be fiscally responsible so that you're not wasting money that could go to save lives. Hmm. David Sweet has been with us, MP for Flamborough Glanbrook. He has been chosen to chair Parliament's Ethics Committee uh, as we move into a, another round of, uh, of investigations surrounding the We Charity scandal. David, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. You too. Stay healthy, strong. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, over Thanksgiving weekend, uh, some chatter about the two Michaels. Uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who, of course, were uh, have been detained for almost two years now uh, in China as a result of the detention of the Huawei CFO, who is being held uh, in Vancouver on an extradition warrant to the United States. And then I believe it was uh, a week or so, week and a half later, the two Michaels uh, captured in China and have been uh, held captive ever since uh, without any consular service, with lights on all the time. Uh, in conditions that are certainly described as inhumane, and all this while the Huawei CFO enjoys uh, one of two of her mansions, I guess, uh, in Vancouver while awaiting trial to be extradited to the United States. Uh, all of a sudden, in the news that uh, these the two Michaels were granted consular service over the weekend, why now? Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Ben Roswell, President, Canadian International Council, and is with us now. Ben, thanks for the time. Hope you're Hoping you're doing well. Yes, well, you know, hey, thank you to you, uh, to you as well. Um, by keeping the spotlight on these two fellow citizens of ours that are held in such a terrible conditions in such an unjust way is a service that uh, that you do for uh, for our country. I'm really glad that we're not forgetting about Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. How come we're talking about this now? What happened over the weekend that somehow got these two men consular service? Why now? Well, I suspect it's the 50th anniversary of Canada-China relations. You know, it's really embarrassing for China. Um, we were one of the very first countries in the West to reach out to, uh, to China and establish diplomatic relations. Um, back when Pierre Trudeau was prime minister, he was willing to kind of show a little distance from the United States under Richard Nixon. Um, but in some ways, that really paved the, uh, the way for the United States to then follow. Um, and that's, you know, that was after 10 years of Canada really leading the way on trying to break China's isolation in the international uh, system since the wheat exports that we made from Saskatchewan in the 1960s when the country was starving under the Mao Zedong uh, dictatorship. So, you know, this should be a moment of reflection on all that Canada has done uh, for China over the years. And I think it's a little embarrassing that they're treating our country so shabbily through this arbitrary detention of two uh, outstanding citizens. So why would they uh, want to, to highlight this anniversary by granting the two Michaels consular service? Does this not draw attention to all of this and just anger Canadians well, by bringing it back up? Trying, trying to uh, take the edge off the growing Canadian uh, fury with China. I mean, the mood, the public mood on China has just changed so dramatically after uh, the detention of the of the two Michaels, I think we're seeing polls out of the McDonald Laurie Institute with something like 85% of Canadians yeah. being hostile towards China. You know, maybe the, there's some sense that the, they realize what damage uh, they've done to, to Chinese uh, foreign policy with this, uh, this ongoing uh, arrest. You know, the visit that they allowed was actually just a video uh, call, which we could have done anytime through the COVID uh, crisis, but um, delaying that, was itself another arbitrary act. It was a violation of international law not to permit consular access to the citizen of a foreign country held in uh, in detention. Every single country in the world has that obligation to let the uh, the embassy of their whatever nationals are, are in jail. And China hadn't done that for seven or eight years. So it's kind of like they're proving the point that uh, there's no rule of law that applies uh, to the case of the of the two Michaels. 
So they the two Michaels received a consular service this past weekend. Again, we don't know when that is. Tell us about their treatment. What do we know of how they're being held and, and the conditions they're in? Well, I think the, the biggest clue came in the fact that um, Michael Kovrig had not heard of COVID-19. Can you imagine? Oh my, my. In a country that where COVID struck, I mean, it was uh, all over Chinese news. Like everyone in China knew about covid and then, of course, everyone in the world has known about uh, about COVID ever since. But apparently they found out about it for the very first time. The two Michaels found out about COVID when Ambassador Barton um, brought them up to speed on what was happening in the outside world. That, to me, is a sign that they've been in a pretty extreme form of uh, solitary confinement, which, of course, wow. in itself is a is a form of uh, uh, form of abuse. Um, and particularly for, and I'm thinking of Michael Kovrig, right? He's a former colleague of mine in the Foreign Service, like a very well-informed guy, a probably avid consumer of the news, wanting to know everything about China and everything about the world. For him not to know, like, the most important thing that's happened in the world over these last few months uh, suggests that he's been uh, really badly treated. Do we know, uh, and, and did we f- receive any information from this meeting uh, on their condition, how well the two Michaels are doing? I, I, no, none of that information came out. I know that uh, the Canadian government takes uh, privacy of uh, of uh, consular uh, people that are trapped in consular cases very uh, very secret. So it probably would have to be up to the family to uh, to share that. And of course, we did see a statement from Michael Kovrig's wife. I haven't seen anything from the Spavor family, but um, Michael Kovrig's wife uh, Vina Najibola put it on a. Um, I think a, a positive uh, interpretation of what she was hearing about her husband's will not being broken after all these months and almost two years of, uh, of terrible, terrible treatment. Um, I suspect if there was any more negative news about uh, about their treatment, the family has decided to keep that to themselves for now. Uh, we've been we've talked many times on the show on whether and you you spoke about how Canadians' opinions of of uh, the Chinese Communist Party has changed, uh, and we've talked to many experts of uh, you know does China realize that the the kicking its image has taken and and what they're doing to their own uh, image here in the West? Uh, many have said they just simply don't care. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't understand, they don't care how Canadians feel about them. Does our Canadian government realize that the position on the Chinese Communist Party has changed with Canadians? Do they realize that the majority of Canadians are pretty upset about this? Uh, I think so. I mean, I continue to think that the Canadian government doesn't have a ton of options for what to do here. There's a, one option, obviously, releasing Meng Wanzhou that I think would be a mistake and that probably... We, we don't have any guarantee that it would actually result uh, in the, re- the release of the two Michaels. In the absence of that, I mean, there's certainly a lot of support we can we can seek from other countries, and our government's been doing that. Um, but levers of pressure are um, fewer and far between. Some people have talked about perhaps um, denying access to Chinese flights to uh, overfly Canadian space, which would uh, airspace, which would uh, which would cause some damage, but. Um, the, the range of, of options is uh, is pretty limited. You do see some some changing uh, rhetoric. Um, Justin Trudeau coming out uh, in really quite an angry tone back in June, denouncing the arbitrary and political detention of the uh, of the Chinese. I do think the government gets it. I think they're in a in a in a tough bind because um, there's a lot of things to talk to China about. Second largest economy in the world. Um, coordination over coronavirus, any number of things that now are all either on pause or much reduced in their uh, activity because of the, uh, the violation that the Chinese government has made of the, uh, the human rights of these two, uh, of these two Canadians. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty tough situation uh, to be in. And, uh, you know, the blame really is with the Chinese government and not with, uh, with Ottawa. Um, are you? Does this give you confidence that you see this moving? That at least the two Michaels have seen uh, a consular service. Again, we don't know how accurate any of this is, I guess. Um, but does that indicate to you that things may be moving forward? I still think uh, we're in this for the long haul, and unfortunately, the our, you know those two more men and their poor families are suffering. Um, probably have quite uh, some some time to go. The Chinese government has detained them for political reasons, for what they see as strategic 
sort of geostrategic uh, reasons to um, throw their weight around to try and punish an ally of the United States to discourage other countries from being an ally. And that hasn't changed. That doesn't change with uh, with a consular uh, consular visit. I think a consular visit perhaps reflects the growing embarrassment in the Chinese regime that their um, their violation of uh, of basic elements of international law. I don't think I, I don't see a, a change in the fundamental calculations that the Beijing government is making uh, for wanting to continue to violate uh, the right that these two men have to their freedom. What does that mean for Huawei's future in Canada? Well, the reputation of Huawei has also taken a massive hit um, because of its links to the uh, to the Chinese government. Um, the longer the Chinese government um, acts in such an aggressive and unjustified manner towards liberal democracies, the more difficult it's going to be for liberal democracies to try and distinguish between the treatment of the Chinese state and the treatment of Chinese um, state-linked companies like uh, like Huawei. Um, uh, it looks like our government is taking its time on a decision about 5G access, uh, even after the other members of this uh, Five Eyes network um, have made up their minds on uh, uh, on Huawei. Um, I wouldn't be optimistic if I was an investor uh, in Huawei right now. The um, um, the uh, politicization of uh, of everything in the bilateral relationship makes it ever more difficult for the Chinese, for the Canadian government to say, okay, well, we're going to be we're going to disagree on this one issue and we're going to agree on this other issue. It starts to become a kind of all-consuming dynamic that Canada can't afford to reach out to China um, as long as they detain two of our citizens without paying a, a major price on the domestic front with, uh, with Canadians that um, have less and less patience for coddling a dictatorship in Beijing. You're talking about less and less patience that Canadians have. What about allies around the world? Are we going to see a united front on this? Is that going to make a difference? There are a few countries that are certainly uniting um, their efforts and that Canada really should be joining. Uh, that's called the Quad. It's um, a country that's actually a grouping that's been around for about 12 years and Canada has chosen not to be part of it yet, but it's Australia, India, uh, Japan, and uh, or sorry, India and uh, and China. Um, sorry, the United States. Let me get those for right. In, uh, the United States, India, Australia, and Japan. Um, they just met recently in a um, at a pretty senior level to uh, coordinate their uh, their actions. Uh, the best way to deal with the bully, of course, is not to take the bully on yourself, but to uh, to get a posse together. Um, there's unity and strength, and so. Uh, I think it's inevitable that Canada will be joining with other liberal democracies in uh, in standing up to the Chinese uh, the Chinese bully, and I hope it happens sooner rather than later. Ben Roswell has been with us, President Canadian International Council. The two Michaels surfacing again. Their names mentioned over the weekend as they finally received consular service. However, uh, to what extent and the information very limited. Ben, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.